The rule of the household is a monarchy, for every house is under one head, um, meaning the man. <laughs> that is, that's what it is, yeah, that, that's, that's a quote. Um, not, not from the Bible, um, from Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. The gospel began, of course, in, in Jerusalem in a Jewish context. And in that context, the Jews didn't have much thought for or place for women either. Indeed, one of the standard prayers of the the rabbis, the religious leaders, one of their daily prayers included thanking God that they hadn't been born a woman. Um, Now, in that kind of context, you're not off to a good start in terms of finding the woman's place. And as the gospel spread from Jerusalem and as it went out into the, the, the Roman Empire, where the Greek and Roman philosophers' viewpoints still dominated, so it was the kind of thing that Aristotle had said was the dominant thing. Things were not great for women, or for that matter, for children or for slaves. It was a very stratified society in the Roman Empire, and um, it was pretty hard to move from one level to another, whoever you were. And yet the gospel message, when it came into that context, um, was a message of salvation. Christ has died for us. Salvation through the grace of God, we could not have earned that or deserved it. And it was a salvation that made no distinction on, on grounds of status or gender or class or anything. So in the letter before the letter to the Ephesians that we have in the New Testament in Galatians, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When that gospel is heard and believed, we are brought into the family of God, not because of who we are, but because of the grace of God. And we are shown the reality of that salvation by following Jesus, by putting into practice in our daily lives the ways of Jesus. Just as an apple tree shows that it's an apple tree by apples growing on it, so Christians are to grow the life of Jesus so that there will be fruit in our lives, and the fruit is Jesus-likeness. Now, previously in um, chapters 4 and the first half of chapter 5 of Ephesians that we've been looking at, this description of the fruit, this description of the changed life that is to come for those who are in Jesus was described in chapter 4 of a Uh, A taking off and a putting on, taking off all that is not worthy of Jesus and putting on all that is Jesus-like. We were to be doing that throughout our daily lives. And in chapter 5 in the first half, it was described as no longer living lives in darkness, but living in light, verse 8 of chapter 5. So the Christian is called to live a different way. But we live the Christian life In this world, there is not anywhere else that we can do it. And we have no option then but to live within a culture, within a set of understandings and values and practices that go on in a society. Whether it's in Jerusalem and Jesus' time, whether it's in Ephesus and Paul's time, whether it's in Scotland and in our time. We are surrounded by viewpoints, by cultures, And if we follow Jesus, we have to work out what it is in our culture that clashes with the gospel values and find another way to live. 
We need to make and and shape and engage with culture for the cause of Christ. And as part of that, Paul, Paul and the fellow Christians of his time had to think about how Jesus' values shaped life, including life in the household, life in the home. And unusually for our age, but typically for the Greco-Roman world, the household um, can consist of um, husband and wife, parent and children, and masters and slaves. And so Paul talks about these three pairs together. Now, all of the relationships that he mentions then in the reading that David read come, on, come with this heading in verse 21 that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That governs all that Paul is about to say. And the word submit is used here not as some politically loaded term in terms of telling us who's in charge. Submit is a voluntary submission to one another and is to be done amongst all of Christ's people. Submit to one another is for every Jesus follower. Because we have to do it not because we like it or not, but because it's out of reverence for Christ. For Christ's way is one of serving others. And so in contrast to the society of the time, the Gentile scheming that um, Paul described in chapter 4, a a way of self-serving, a way of greed, a way of grabbing, in contrast to that, Jesus' followers are to live as Jesus did by serving one another. Submission then defines all relationships between Christians. Mutual submission to one another flows out of the one another language that has been used throughout this letter and throughout much of the New Testament where we're commanded to submit to one another, encourage one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, love one another, and so on. And we follow a crucified Savior who taught, and this is from Matthew 20, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, says Jesus, that's the way. You're not here to be served, but to serve. And that was my way. That's what I did. The Son of Man didn't come insisting on being served. The Son of Man came to to serve and to give his life as a ransom for others. And that does bring us immediately, does it not, into a clash with the society's values, which tells you to affirm yourself, get yourself, boost yourself, push yourself on, which measures your place in society by how much you have earned and achieved and and have and, and so on and so forth. Clearly, the way of Christ stands out in marked contrast to that. And so the motive for mutual submission is to be that deep reverence for Jesus and a desire to follow his example. It is not the case that wives are to submit, husbands aren't. Children submit, parents don't. Or slaves submit and masters don't. All six of these groups, all six of these categories are on a level footing in terms of finding salvation through the grace of God. That was Paul's point in the verse I read from Galatians. We're all one in Christ Jesus. But yet Paul is faced with taking this message or that message into 
that very stratified Greek-Roman society and way of thinking. And in doing so, he uses familiar vocabulary. He talks about the head for the husband in verse 23. He tells wives to submit. And in the sections on slave, children and slaves, he speaks of obedience, of duty, of respect. And it might seem at first reading of that passage that Paul is just saying the same as all the rest of the world around him. Saying yes to the usual social patterns, putting husbands in charge and giving them a blank check, parents over their children and masters over their slaves. And it's true that these verses have often been used, or rather I should say these verses have often been misused um, over the years. Many a woman has been told to put up with all kinds of um, domestic abuse and stuff because that's your job. Wives are to submit to husbands. But that's not all that Paul says here. He has established, verse 1, the mutual submission to one another. And then note in these verses the frequent use of the word as. As Christ did. That is making the behavior of both husband and wife to relate to Christ's way. Note too that verse 4 of chapter 6, he tells parents not to give children their own teaching and ideas, but the Lord's. It's the training and instruction of the Lord. It is not, I say so, so you better do it. Or even worse, and I still carry the, uh, whatever it is from my childhood, I've been told do as I say, not as I do. It's the Lord's way. And when verse 23, Paul says that Christ is head of the church, his body, notice that he does not then go on to say, Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the ruler. He goes on to say, of which he is the saviour. That is, the headship is exercised not by being boss, but the headship is exercised by a way of sacrifice and serving. That's how Christ became saviour. He did not become saviour by um, waving some scepter or or powerful uh, law or anything. He became saviour, as we're told in Philippians 2, by emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient even unto death on the cross. That's the way of saviorhood in Jesus' terms. And the headship, verse 23, surely has to be worked out. The husband is head of the wife as Christ is, as Christ is head of the church. Just as much as, in the same way as. And so it was pastorally wrong and irresponsible to say to wives, you have to put up with it. And not to say to husbands, you have no right to dominate. You have no right. You are to serve as Christ serves. You see, that's, that's how you, do, you won't get that in Aristotle. He's saying that the male is a monarch. Saying that in a time of authoritarian rule all over the world. The monarchs weren't simply a titular head of state the way that our royal family are. 
the monarch said the law and that was, that was it. And that was the context in which Aristotle said these words. It is not what Paul's writing here. And the role that Jesus played as head, that serving and sacrificing one, is the one that we, we are to put into practice. And so notice that although Paul is using the same words and the same categories as was used by Jews, by Romans and Greeks, he wasn't simply just keeping up with the times and going along with the flow. Rather, in fact, the familiar ways were turned upside down when husbands were told that their love was to be sacrificial. When parents were told, verse 4 of chapter 6, that they have a peacemaking role to fulfill. When masters were told, verse 9, that they have to be accountable to their master in heaven. The old language is being used, but the meaning is being transformed. In fact, it's even staggering that Paul, in these verses, addresses the, the wives and the children and the slaves at all, because that would not have been done in the, in the common culture of the time. They just would have spoken to the guy and said, on you go, you do that, you're the boss. And it, strikingly, Paul speaks to the wives and to the children and to the slaves first. Each of these sections he addresses them first. This is very different to what would have been going on at the time. Four times in nine verses, he tells husbands to love their wives and says that that love is defined by Jesus. And just as Christ loves, feeds, and cares for his body, the church, so the husband, verse 26, is to love and care for his wife. And strikingly in that verse, by using terms like washing with water, he's actually relating that to a job that was usually the wife's job in the house. Even in saying that, He's saying something that would have been strange to the ears of those who first read this epistle. And so in Paul's vision for God's new society, that kind of loving others in that way is to be as natural as loving yourself, verses 28 and 29. Now, amongst other things in this passage, Paul is giving us an example, a good example, of what it is to be living in the world but not just going along with whatever the world says. Christianity is not some faith that can be kept separate from the rest of our daily lives and living. It's been saying in chapter 4, we have to put off all that's unchrist-like and put on all that is Christ-like. It is chapter 5, be moved from darkness to light. It's an all-of-life, all-day, everyday faith and action. It is not about some future existence in heaven that it's got nothing to do with things down here. It is about the life of God, the kingdom of God, tasted and experienced now. It's about the infusion of God's life, God's ways, into the ordinary and the everyday. And about how each day we are to live out, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In answer to the prayer. Life is to be transformed now. The way we live and the things we live for will be different if we are in Christ. And yet, as we said earlier, we do live in a particular place, in a particular time, in a particular culture. And therefore, we can never escape the responsibilities to look at 
and assess that culture and its ways in the light of the Christian gospel. It is never an argument for the Christian to say, well, you just simply have to move with the times. It is never an argument for us to say, well, these things have changed. If that is calling into question something that we have in the Scriptures. And Paul gives us a good example of this because he doesn't simply say, throw all of that out, put all of that in. He, as I say, argues with the familiar uh, terms and categories so that people will understand where he's starting from. But having started with the familiar terms and categories, he then takes them to a different place as he explains in a quite a radical way how Christian home life should be very different. And in redefining these roles according to Jesus' teaching, Paul shows us how we can form the basis for Christian behavior by taking the familiar words and ideas but translating them into gospel meaning. And our task today as believers, as followers of Jesus, is similar to identify both the connections and the contradictions between the worldviews around us and the gospel. And then having identified them to side with the gospel in order to both explain and to put into practice the way of Jesus. Now there are a number of ways in which what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 clashed not simply with his time and era but also clashes with ours. And the deepest and most pervasive clash is perhaps not most obvious on the surface. For the deepest and the most fundamental of the clashes is between what he's describing as the way of Christ as mutual submission, therefore a, a, a corporate serving one another life, that, that clashes with the ethos of our time, which is rampantly about individualism and about entitlement. We hear people often talking about rights, but never talking about responsibilities. Why is that? Because of a sense of entitlement. If, if there's rights without responsibilities, that's what that is, isn't it? I've got rights, therefore I'm entitled to. And it's very pervasive in that world around us. And it's led to a very functional approach to family life. And in the modern case also, verses 5 to 10, of, to work. Each of the husband, wife, parent, child, boss, worker relationships, when they don't see eye to eye in our world, are then in competition and confrontation. It's the only way that individualism and entitlement can go. I'm, I'm right, this is my point of view. If you've got yours, then, then you're wrong, because if I'm entitled, then you can't be as entitled. It's fine when everything works, but when we're arguing over the last piece of cake or whatever... It breaks down. There is no place for individualism and entitlement to go except into confrontation. Except into survival of the fittest or survival of the strongest and most powerful. There is no underlying unity to appeal to when we come to things as individuals with a suit myself attitude. Rather, in Jesus-like terms, we are to be submitting to and serving one another. 
And the currency of sacrifice and servanthood rather than domination is what matters in Christian terms. The kind of love that Jesus not only talked about but showed us and gave us as a way to live. Wasn't that what he was doing when, at the, before the Last Supper with his, his disciples in the upper room just before he went to the cross? That story in John chapter 13 where Jesus himself takes off his, his robe and takes the towel and the water and washes the feet of his disciples. The, the work that a servant was supposed to do. And Jesus did it. There wasn't a, an official servant there to do that. And yet in the culture of the time, walking and with sandals and dusty roads, the feet would be washed before the meal. Jesus did it. And then he said to his disciples, I've given you something as an example here for you to do. That's the way of Jesus. And that, in so many places, brings us into conflict with a grabbing, getting society in which we live. And the primary way that we learn that kind of love, the primary way that we are to see and express that love is not necessarily in the family unit, but in the church. Because it's Jesus' love. It's a Jesus-type love. Love of Christ is to take precedence. Love for Christ and for the body of Christ takes precedence. Now, this should help us understand some of Jesus' words. For example, from Matthew 10, where he says, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Or again in Matthew 12, when someone came to Jesus and said, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. Jesus replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. These are pretty stark words, aren't they? And so they tell us that the origin of love is not what we individually feel. Oh, the origin of love is not what we necessarily experience in our families, because many of us don't. But the origin of love is the great love of God in Christ that creates a new society, that creates a new family, a new people, tasked with loving one another across all kinds of barriers of gender, race, class, status, and so on. So we do not learn about the kind of love that Christians are called to in our families and then apply that to the church. Rather, we are to learn from Jesus himself what he means by love, to practice that as in the body of Christ and apply that to our families. That's the movement here in Ephesians 5 and 6, isn't it? You learn to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You work through that way of, of serving and sacrifice and what it means. You begin to give that, that expression. You put flesh and blood onto these words. And then you apply these words to, to the marriage, to the home situation, to your families, to your work situation. The priority and the fundamental of love then is what we find in Christ and in the body of Christ. Now the fact that that sounds so odd to our ears... And it does. The fact that that sounds so odd to our ears is due to how far Western culture has taken us from the message of the Bible. 
is due to how far the culture in which we have grown has taken us away from the gospel of Jesus. Instead of our being loyal to the gospel and letting that speak to culture, we have let too often let culture shape how we understand life. It's the wrong way around. And were we to experience that the better way around, were we to realize that here is the source of love and the expression, it would answer so many of the other questions that follow. For example, it would give a good basis for celebrating, not just putting up with, but celebrating singleness. It is not something that people have missed out on as an ultimate, but rather they still have the ultimate in Christian love in the body of Christ. It would make a different approach, surely, to the whole debate, too, about abortions, which is based on, it's my body and my right, or so often based on that. Not always, but so often based on that. And in Christian terms, that's a nonsense. In fact, in Christian terms, that's an abhorrence. We do not have rights without responsibilities. There's issues about serving, not just having our way. Love is not about the self. We are not all individuals. And the church has to make that case in the wider world. In part, that's what Paul's doing in these verses. And he's doing it not just by taking the familiar terms and and redefining them, but also he was doing it by the way he lived. For the best case that we can make is to show that the way of Jesus actually works and actually does make a difference. That it brings wholeness and well-being. That's part of the the tragedy when churches get into debates and and arguments about things like keeping their building open or doing it their way or that way. It, it, it It shows individualism and entitlement. It doesn't show the way of Christ. And we need to learn how to better handle these things. Not that we'll get it right all the time, but often it will be how we handle failure and inconsistency that will be as good a witness as anything. The church's ministry in the world would be a whole lot more effective if we learn to better handle the muck-ups and grow on from them. That said giving a positive reflection of the way of Christ in all of our daily living would bring greater fulfillment for ourselves, but it would also be a powerful witness and greater help to the cause of the gospel in today's world. We want that, surely. Let us pray.